0: Uh, we're going to turn to the Psalms, please. Um, we're looking at Psalm 73. So, Psalm 73. If you're using the Church Bibles, it's page 586. This is part of our series as we've been thinking about change and the transforming power of God. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I was envious, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, Pride is their necklace, they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity and evil conceits and the evil conceits of their mind knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. And in sharp contrast, the poor, pathetic believer, surely, in vain, have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued, been punished every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And in a moment we shall reflect on some of that psalm as we think of the transforming power of God to change attitudes and lives and relationships. So we're thinking about change. And from this Psalm 73, I want us to try to go on this journey with Asaph and identify with his struggles and, by God's grace, come through the other end. This uh, psalm is a good... uh, Illustration of what it means to experience change in the positive sense, change of attitude, of thinking, and relating both to ourselves and, and to God. Let's give it uh, some sort of uh, a context for a moment. Asaph, Haman, and Ethan, Ethan, a derivation of Jeduthan, were Levites uh, who served as music leaders in the sanctuary during David's reign. I would like you just to turn, this is the only uh, reference that we have, to um, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, just to get the the setting so that you have a feel of who this man Asaph is. Uh, if you're looking in the Church Bibles, it's page 420, 420 in the Church Bibles. 1 Chronicles 16, 1 Chronicles 16 and verse... 7. Verse 4 says this, he uh, appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to make petition to give thanks and praise to the God of Israel, Asaph was chief and Zechariah and so on and so forth. You have these worship leaders, a bit like what we have in church today. Um, But come to verse 7. If if you were to take time when you go home, just read this. It resonates, vibrates with with thanksgiving, with praise, with rejoicing. And it sets the tone as you think of Asaph and his task. So, verse 7. That day, David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord. And then from verse 8 right through to the end a marvelous anthem of praise and glory. Let's just have a a quick feel of it and select one or two verses. Verse 8. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice and so on and so on. And it comes to a great crescendo in verse 36. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Well, there you have the response. And it's in that context now that we're thinking about Asaph. And it might almost seem an anticlimax. But there is an air of realism that praise isn't just escaping from life for an hour and then returning to the grind. It's not like that. And Asaf has a lot to say to us. What we're going to do is to look at four quick headings as we progress through through the the psalm itself. So first of all, you see Asaf as a worshipper, stating what he believes. uh, What you believe is important. And his statement is, God is good. God is good. And then, secondly, you see him as, though a leader in the church, inter- giving intercessions, leading praise and so forth, a doubter slipping from his foothold, from the ground in which he is standing. It may seem that we expect a lot from our leaders, and yet here he is, doubting almost the statement that he's made. And then thirdly, think about us as a skeptic, struggling with life's experience. It's all very well coming to church, that's okay, but you know, look what's happening in my life and my family, and look at the sense of injustice, how can you make sense of it all? So, worshipping doesn't make you bury your head in the sand, or become a mere spectator in church life. And then finally you see him as a believer seeing a bigger canvas. If you like what we call seeing the the bigger picture. So that's where we're going. Let's look first of all then, uh, stating what he believes. There is his affirmation of faith. His creedal statement. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You see... Asaf could not lead the people in what he called divine worship if he had questions about the Lord himself. How can he worship this God when he can't square the circle of suffering and injustice and unfairness? Either for him personally or for the people with whom he lives. So he struggling. He, he's struggling. Let's look at these four stages then. You see, this is his conviction. How would you reduce what you believe into a sentence if you can? Jesus is Lord. God is good. Jesus saves. He is making this statement, God is good. He is essentially And he is intrinsically good all the time. He's good. He's good to Israel, his covenant people. And he's good to those who are pure in heart, to those who trust him. Because in a general sense, he's good to all people, giving us life and health and breath and food and family and friends and so forth. But in this covenant sense, he's talking about God's goodness. Jesus reaffirmed that statement, didn't he, in what you call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. And you might say, you know, I can't see God in that situation. I can't see it. Well, have another look. Stand back a bit more. Blessed are the pure in heart. You see God in many situations. But here's the problem. The very beliefs that are foundational to his faith, this conviction that God is good, compounds the problem. Because it doesn't seem like it. it. doesn't seem like it. Put it like this. If God is good, then why? And you can ask a whole host of questions. Why? If God is good, Put it like this, why is it, as best you can tell what we mean by good people, why is it good people have such bad luck? And why is it, it seems to me that such bad people have good luck? And it might recoil within you at a certain point and you say, it's not fair, it's not fair. That's what he's saying, it's not fair. And it's not just a good life. It is when you look at life, oftentimes it is bewildering and complicated. But notice what he's saying in verse 1. Surely, surely, truly. He says it in verse 13. There it is again. Surely. (laughs) This is rubbish. This is for nothing. All this business about living the Christian life, maybe it's just because I happen to be born in a certain family, influence of parents or friends and so on. I'm not really convinced about this. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Because what is this? It's a terrible thing for a believer to say, surely. Look, in vain I've uh, kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued, been punished every morning. Look at this. It's quite something, isn't it? You get it again in verse 18. This idea of surely uh, this affirmation. So, the application surely is this that when we are struggling with the mysteries of life, when we are, let's be willing to face them. Let's not just switch off. Let's not bury our heads in the sand. And what we need to do more than anything else is this. You may well say, and rightly so, I don't understand this. I'm finding this very difficult. But may I say this humanly speaking, don't sulk, don't withdraw into yourself, don't get depressed. Hold on to this one good thing, the goodness of God. He is good. That's his nature. He is good. Life isn't often unfair, random and inexplicable. No question about that. A worshipper stating what he believes. And now doubt a doubter slipping from his ground. Look at verse 2. But as for me, yeah, that's my, that's my creedal statement. There it is. I've said what I believe, but now what I experience. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he's not criticizing the unbeliever. He's envious of them. Put simply, the wicked, whoever the wicked are, the unbeliever or the people who are, set their face against God and reject Jesus Christ, they are happier. Do you know? I've made an observation, and uh, I, I, to be honest, they are healthier, and moreover, they are wealthier, happier. Healthier, wealthier, look at me. Look at look at the things that's happening to me. And think of the believer today. It's it's not too difficult for us to make some sort of comparisons, to put ourselves, if you like, for a moment, in Asaf's shoes, the leader of worship, the one who is instructing the people. He doesn't want just to say things because he's paid to but not believe them. He's in a dilemma. And I think many in LCBC are going through tough times. And so you see in verse 4, look, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Very opposite to me. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Think of the human ills that ravage our lives in terms of illness and, and sickness. Put yourself in ourselves' place for a moment. And uh, look, uh, for example, in verse uh, 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Now that's come into the church. There's a whole teaching among health, wealth and prosperity that's been taught. If you trust in Jesus, you're going to have that. As long as you give plenty of money to the church, you'll have that. As long as you do certain things. That doesn't square with so much in the Bible that life is often hard and challenging. So in contrast to the struggling believer, here's the successful, the popular unbeliever. Look at verse 9, for example. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, their tongues take possession of the earth. They are the people they are the people who who, who who are the trendy folk. The people who you see as the leaders who influence society. And as far as religion, as far as faith, well, they say, how can God know? Prove to me. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Get a life, they say. So, us at this point, we could say three things. The first, he is discontented with himself. He looks in the mirror and he's not impressed. He's not happy. You see that in verse 13. So, he's discontented with himself. He is envious of other people, even though they're unbelievers. And thirdly, he has a big complaint about God. And that complaint comes, there you have it in verse 15. If I said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand it, it was oppressive to me. So I just kept quiet. Those three things, not happy with himself. Envious of the unbeliever, complaining against God. It's not a good place to be, is it? And now his, his foundation, if you like, his spiritual foundation, begins to shake. And he's losing, he, what we call, if you like, he's losing it spiritually. He's losing it. Sometimes we say about some people in different situations, he's losing it. Or he's lost the plot. That's what he's like spiritually. Okay, let's move quickly to uh, the third. Here's a, here is a sceptic struggling with life's experience. See verses 4 to 40. We, at this point, I think we could make two brief comments. The first is this. Think about doubt for a moment. Doubt is not unbelief. Unbelief is a choice. Unbelief is the way that you choose to, to respond to the living God. I hope that is not true of anybody here this morning in terms of a chosen unbelief. Doubt, then, if it's not that, it's not the denial of God, it's a sort of, can I put it like this, a halfway house. A halfway house. But eventually, with this doubt, you'll come down either one side or the other. You can't stay in this, Permanent state of indecisiveness. Indifference ultimately is unbelief. Doubt is not unbelief. It's not a denial of God. It's a sort of halfway house. But, but, it will come down on one side or the other, ultimately. The second thing to say is this, that we're thinking about this skeptic struggling with life's experience. Asaph comes to the wrong conclusion. You see in verse 13 that he should say this. Surely in vain i would kept my heart pure. I've been praying. I've been seeking God. I've been trying to live a godly life. I've been willing to put my name forward in church to take on leadership. I've, you know, I've All this sort of thing. And in vain... Yet again, I washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I'm plagued and been punished every morning. I wake up just the same. I'm saying to you that he came to the wrong conclusion. It's, it's not right to say I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time serving God. Serving God, however, in this sense what's in it for me? If I come to church today and I say, well, well, what can I get out of it? In one sense, of course, that's right. But what can I give back to God, to his people? How can I get alongside folk rather than expect them always to get alongside me? He almost bought into that philosophy that we were thinking about earlier on. Health, wealth and prosperity. It is very reassuring that he makes a remarkable spiritual recovery. And this is now where we come to the fourth and the final area of change. Here he is, a believer, a believer, and seeing a bigger canvas, the bigger picture. A sense of standing back and trying to see the whole thing, thinking a bit more globally. So in verses 15 to 28, you have this, so it takes a deep breath, and he says, Yes, if I spoke like this, if people knew my inner thoughts, what good would it do? Why should I undermine other people's faith? Let them go on believing. It seems to work for them, doesn't for me. When I tried to understand it, it was oppressive to me, so I stopped trying. Until. And then there's that wonderful, pivotal moment, isn't there, in verse 17. I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny and mine. That all choices in life have consequences. So be- before sort of giving up, um, you know, sort of thinking, okay, I'll have a career change. I'll stop being uh, a church leader. I'll do something else. I'll just, uh, I'll just turn up occasionally. It dawns on him just how incredibly selfish his attitude was and is. You know, it's all about me, isn't it? How I feel. How I think. It's all about me. What I think about the church. Why it doesn't satisfy my needs. Really? Isn't it about him? About his glory and his grace and his goodness? Well, of course it is. Poor me. Poor me. The proverbial E.O. The frequency of the I of the there, you see verses 7, 7, 13 to 17, you, you see it there. He keeps saying that. Look, um, surely in vain I kept my heart pure. I washed my hands all day long. I've been punished. I've been punished every morning. And so on and so on. You, you just look at it. So what he failed to see, and sometimes for us what we can fail to see, is the glory of God in the situations in which we find ourselves. It's here and now, not there and then, isn't it? A lot to be made of Sir Alex Ferguson, but his very simple dictum, which seemed to work, was Play for today, plan for tomorrow. What could happen tomorrow? Think of potential injuries. Think of all sorts of things. Look, we've got this day. It's today. Let's do it now, today. And we'll think of tomorrow. Yes, let's plan. But let's live today. Perhaps the Christian should say, pray for today. And plan for tomorrow. And so instead of poor me, it's how good is our God. And he is good. And his grace is constant. He fails to see the glory of God. Just turn back one page in, in your Bible to Psalm 68. It's a, it's a, a lovely um, complement to what we're saying here. Just uh, one page, Psalm 68 and verse 35. Again, this whole idea of, of, of changing the outlook, changing the attitude. Psalm 68, verse 35. You are awesome, O God. In your sanctuary, the God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise the Lord. Until I went into the sanctuary, then I knew, then I understood, then I experienced. It's a powerful verse, isn't it? It's a new perspective, a new dynamic. He's humbled. He regains his spiritual equilibrium, if you like. He's not out of kilter now. And so in verse 21 to 24, as you come back to Psalm 73, look at this. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me by your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Now let's say where we're at. Let's think about our life as it really is. What's it about? Well, whom have I in heaven but you? Really? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing ultimately I de- desire besides you. And you know what? Like other people... One day I may have a heart attack. Or my, my, I may be diagnosed with incurable illness. And it's not fair. But you know what? One day, I can't see now what one day I will know. And so he says, That's where I'm at now. And if you're coming to me for explanation, you, you're not going to be happy. But look, God is good. We've been on the journey, He's slipping, He's struggling. He's seeing the bigger picture. He can see what before he couldn't see. A new perspective. He's humbled. He regains his spiritual balance. And here we are. Just round off the the sermon as we think about change. What in the life of the New Testament believers, the greatest source of change, but the power of the Spirit... What we could call, if you like, the divine difference. The divine difference. It is the Spirit of God who turns seekers into believers. Believers into disciples and disciples into worshippers. He does that. Church can't do that. He does that. And it is the Spirit of God who can turn shrines into churches. Concerts into worship, words into prayers, lectures into sermons, duty into joy, sinners into saints. That's the transformation. And without him, the church is utterly helpless and irrelevant. Simply put like this, whatever we've said now, we could leave here and we say, well, you know, that's one philosophy... That's one view of religion. There are others. This is one among them. It it, it is not arrogant to say that is not so. This God, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, sending His Spirit, is the one to whom all people will give an account. And the psalm ends full circle. Look at verse 28. With changed perspective, and fresh confidence, and blessed assurance, in verse 28, but as for me, is if you say, I can't speak for you, and you can't speak, okay, now you internalize that, as for me, it is good to be near to God, I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds, and he's arrived. Change needs to happen. Indeed, the Christian life is one life of constant change. The transforming power of God's grace. Let's be real and open and honest with Him. Let's not get stuck along the journey. Let's avoid the the snare of bitterness and indifference. Let's trust God and reach out to Him once more and believe in Him. That's a sure sign that the Spirit is working in our lives. And let's be receptive to Him, not grieve Him, and make our response. Um, That urn is boiling. And I've finished the sermon now, by the way. Just just remind me, um, I was listening to Neil preaching last Sunday, and he came on, and I had a flashback, 30 years, to um, a little chapel where I was taking a funeral, and it has no electricity. If you know, it's the one on the top of Ashendon going down to Wadsden. That, they call it the five-mile uh, descenting chapel. It's over 300 years old, and it's taken over by the Buck's preservation set. You should call and see it. It's interesting. Well, it has no electricity, and it's got one of these old-fashioned boilers in the middle, which disseminates heat round like that, and I got to this chapel earlier taking the funeral of a, a farmer's wife and they were farming communities and the dust as the sun shone through on the pews and i thought of all these people coming in their sunday best to the funeral and i thought the pews are cleaner for them coming and but that wasn't the point i was talking to the caretaker and uh he wanted to, i'd not met him before and he wanted to know what i was about and so on and he says to me um they have to have a, a service On a Sunday afternoon, because with no electricity, and uh, it was just for the light and so on. And uh, he said, uh, see that, that's a wrought iron kettle that goes on the boiler. And when I fill it full, it will whistle in an hour. But he said to me, for some persons I fill it half full. That's true. That is absolutely true. Well, that's whistling now. We could put a whistle on the air and That would be good. Yes. That's naughty, isn't it? So we're going to sing our final um, hymn, which speaks about Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. Christ, over all, our undivided aim. Fire of the spirit, burn for our enduring. Wind of the spirit, fan. The living flame. So we turn to Christ amid, there it is, our fear unfailing, the will that lacks the courage to be free. Let's think of these words as we think about the Psalm of Asaph and respond and allow the Lord to change us. The us stand and sing.